everyone, this is Annie Huang here. I am an Agents of Change fellow and also in my last year of medical school at the University of California in San Francisco or UCSF. And I am here with my partner in crime, Rodrigo. Hi everyone, uh, this is Rodrigo Alatriste Diaz. I am a researcher at the UC Merced Community and Labor Center. Um, we had the great opportunity to interview Nayamin Martinez the executive director of the Central California Environmental Justice Network. And uh, in this phenomenal interview, uh, Nayamin was able to kind of outline how community organizations uh, were forced to step in during COVID to assist uh, farm workers in a variety of issues, but specifically and with very basic things like masks. Uh, in the later part of the interview, um, I was also super excited to to be able to learn about the citizen science projects that are going on in the Central Valley and some of the effects that these projects have in building capacity in, or in communities in terms of environmental science and knowing where to report air pollution, which is a critical issue for the Valley. Um, Annie, did you have any uh, thoughts about the interview? Yeah, no, I thought it was a fascinating episode. I learned so much. Um, about farm workers and the unique challenges that they face in the Central Valley. I mean, specifically regarding women farm workers and kind of that double-edged sore that they kind of have to experience um, during the pandemic, um, especially with regards to childcare and poor working conditions. So I just thought that it was just a phenomenal episode overall um, in learning everything. And I think um, everyone, I think there are so many points from this episode that people from all across the United States and across the world would be able to um, resonate with. So for everyone, enjoy the show. So I'm here with uh, Nayamin Martinez. Uh, Nayamin Martinez directs the Central California Environmental Justice Network. She holds a master's degree in public health and sociology and she has worked for the Madera County Public of Health Department as a health educator, sorry, health education coordinator, and was a health projects coordinator for the Binational Center for the Development of the Oaxacan Indigenous Communities. Um, Nayamin, thank you for being here. It's really nice to see you. Thank uh, you for the invitation. And uh, we wanted to start off uh, to by getting more information about um, the work that CCA, CCEJN uh, does and the ongoing work on pesticide advocacy and protection of farm workers in the Central Valley. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, please? Sure. Well, first and foremost, I just want to acknowledge that um, Central California Environmental Justice Network, or CCJN for short, was founded in 2000 by uh, very visionary leaders that have noticed that uh, many parts of our Central Valley were um, burdened more uh, severely than others by numerous sources of pollution, pesticides being just one, but others are, for example, the oil and gas extraction, dairies, and obviously the air pollution that is a chronic problem for the entire region. But what these visionary leaders uh, encounter is that it, do, it didn't matter if you live in, in Modesto or in Kern County or in Fresno or Merced, 
the common denominator is that the neighborhoods that were more impacted are uh, neighborhoods with low-income people of color residing there. And for that, uh, you know, the way that um, these leaders uh, described that situation was environmental racism. And I know that this is a term that nowadays is in fashion, it's used everywhere. And now at the government level, at both, you know, federal, state, local, there's an effort to teach environmental justice and just put it in, you know, in the mission statements of all the agencies. But 25, 21 years ago, CCJN was already talking about environmental racism and that uh, the vision of the organization was really to fight this environmental racism and to uh, make sure that in our communities we had opposite environmental justice, that we have health equity and that people of color will not be burdened by more pollution cited in our neighborhoods just because of these racist practices. So I am extremely proud and humbled to have the opportunity to work leading this organization because of uh, what I said. I mean, it is completely um, stunning that 21 years ago, there was already the vision of, of this path to move forward. Sadly, on the other side is that 21 years, uh, uh, we are still fighting for these principles because on, unfortunately in our valley, there are so many ways in which uh, pollution continue to affect low-income people of color and pesticides, uh, it's one of those topics, not the only, but a, a very significant one. Yeah. And could you um, go into some of the work that uh, CCJN is currently uh, working on in, related to pesticides and yes. farm worker protection? So um, our, our work around pesticides, I could um, describe it in short, medium and long term goals. In the short term, uh, what we have been doing is educating farm workers and residents living in rural communities that are fence line to the fields where these pesticides are applied to know their rights, to know that, um, you know, there are rules that are, are meant to protect their safety and that there's ways to report these violations and that we're going to make sure that those violations when reported are fully investigated and that if there's any violation that there are uh, fine supply to whomever is responsible for doing that. So education is a, a key part of our work. We do that by going to the field. We do that by doing house meetings, community meetings, a very grassroots approach. So education, you know, I would say is an ongoing effort. But we understand that education is not the only thing that we can do. And we, we are always advocating when we see that there is either a missing rules or regulation or where there is a lack of enforcement of existing regulations. And in terms of the missing elements, one of the current campaigns that CCJN is working uh, hand by hand with uh, other advocates across the state is that uh, the Department of Pesticide Regulation implements a statewide notification system that would allow uh, residents who live near the fields or uh, residents of communities near uh, where the pesticides are applied to know before the application is happening. Right now, there's no that uh, no such a system, and we believe that the right to know of people it's it's fundamental to be able to protect their health. So, 
luckily in this year's state budget, uh, the government allocated $10 million for this statewide notification system, which we see as a big um, accomplishment in the right direction. But we are pushing DPR because right now, like any other regulatory agency, they are uh, saying that, oh, they, they are not going to have this in place and the rule finalized until 2024. And for us, that's, that's not uh, admissible. Uh, the residents have the right to know today. They have the right to know yesterday. And they don't need to wait until 2024, especially because the information is already at the tip of the fingers of the ag commissioners. They receive a notice of intent every time a farmer is going to apply a restricted material. And what we are asking is that you have the information, just make it public, put it in a website so that anybody that wants to know has access to that information. So uh, we're working, we're participating, we're making sure that residents' voices are heard. Uh, we recently um, hosted a tour with the acting director of, the, of DPR, Julie Henderson. With, uh, we took her uh, around rural areas in Fresno County to hear from residents. Uh, she was also joined by the Fresno County Act Commissioner. So that is our short-term campaign. But in the, in the meantime, what we also have uh, realized is that the only sustainable way to, to move forward is if we stop using pesticides. We wouldn't need a notification system. We wouldn't need more regulations if less pesticides were used. In our state, uh, there's more than 200 million pounds of pesticides applied every year. And 61% of those are applied in the Central Valley with Fresno, Kern, and Tulare being the top three users. So there are other ways of farming. And frankly, um, not only to protect the health of residents and farm workers who are affected by pesticides, but in general, if California really is about stopping this crisis of climate change, agriculture is a big culprit of it. And right now, that is not being discussed or talked about in all the different plans and agencies that are trying to address climate change in our state. So we need to start by recognizing that and we're taking measures. So because of that, we are active in other coalitions that are, for example, um, encouraging the state to invest more in offering funding and technical assistance to farmers so that they can uh, transition to sustainable agricultural practices. Uh, that includes not using pesticides, not using chemical fertilizers, uh, having, um, for instance, adopting more solar panels in their farms, using um, cleaner tractors and the whole, you know, the whole process. So that is kind of our midterm goal that uh, those investments are made and that farmers, uh, small farmers of color are not left behind, but they are given access and actually priority in this funding. I think that's a great point. I, I recently saw a uh, webinar about uh, extreme heat and um, standards for, for farm workers. And so the, the mitigation tends to be, you know, um, breaks, monitoring of, of human, uh, the temperature of, of, hum of humans' bodies, and mitigation terms to, tends to be uh, tree cover. And so it was a very interesting discussion because I think what they pointed out was in places where you have a high density of population and uh, 
absence of tree cover, those are areas that you would want to focus on in cities. And it's almost the exact opposite in, in rural communities, right? Densely populated, and we have a lot of trees and we have, a, but, you know, they're in, in agriculture. And, and so it's a very different relationship. Exactly. You know, and, and uh, definitely you talk uh, about another important aspect of how, um, you know, agriculture is, is contributing to exacerbate the impact of climate change in a, a certain population, which are the farm workers. Um, especially that it's suffer in the Central Valley and other areas of the state where we have very, you know, hot summers. Because, you know, you have your farm workers working in days where, where we easily exceed 100 and plus degrees. And as you are saying, they give them more breaks, but that's really just a band-aid. Uh, we have not seen that many cases of heat stroke, but what we we're not measuring or monitoring is the health, long-term health effects. Right now, we're asking these farm workers to be working out, exposed to to the to the heat, exposed to super high levels of ozone. That that's the pollutant that we have uh, significantly high during the summer months, and also being a gas. Uh, there's no way you can be protected. For PM, at least you, like, for example, California adopted the rule that states that when the air quality is above 151 uh, in the air quality index, that the employers need to give the farm workers uh, N95 mask that protects them from particle uh, fine particles. But there's no protection for ozone. The only protection is to be indoors. So one of the recommendations that we have made is What about investing or, or, or uh, supporting farmers that can and be willing to to change their business model so that the farm workers, for instance, can work in the evenings when there's not going to be exposure to ozone or heat stroke or all those conditions? So I think that um, there's a lot of potential in just making sure that the, the investments are going to the right strategies and to the people that need it the most. You also mentioned uh, long-term strategies. The uh, long-term is- strategy that we are, um, we would like to see in terms of um, just farming, uh, agriculture, pesticides used in the valley and in our state is that California actually creates and implements a plan for towards a sustainable uh, agricultural um, farming. So, I am part of a group that is called the Sustainable Pest Management Working Group that was established um, earlier this year. It is uh, very uh, diverse. There have representation from industry, so the citrus industry, the almond board, uh, but also researchers from different uh, universities of California, environmental justice advocates like myself. And we were is ambitioning what can and California should do to, 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 you know, just transition to sustainable agricultural practices. So we're going to uh, end in next year with a set of recommendations, policy recommendations uh, for the state that hopefully can he, uh, act as a roadmap of uh, where we do, where we go from here. And uh, in, in the other thing that we're doing toward that long-term goal is not waiting until that is a reality in the entire state. We are right now implementing two pilot projects in collaboration with other organizations. One is in Tulare, one is here in Fresno. And these pilot programs are offering, will be offering um, 
classes to farm workers that would like to become small farmers, but using sustainable agricultural practices, giving them access to land where they could apply those practices, give, giving them access to knowledge. We know that our farm workers already know how to farm, but sometimes they don't know the business model. They don't know what all the permits, what is required. So that's going to be uh, provided. And, um, and these are two pilots, but our long-term goal is in partnership with these organizations to establish an agroecology center in the Central Valley that really would be the model of how um, we should be farming in our region uh, in contrary to the you know conventional farming that is going on right now. Thank you, Naomi. I think those are great points to to outline. Um, we I I had a, a question about um, the how farm workers have fared uh, during COVID. Um, I know that in social media and the news, there's been um, a lot of interest around uh, uh, wildfires and its and their effects on on farm workers, and also um, your experience in, in terms of uh, how enforcement occurred or didn't occur during the pandemic. Well, I can tell you that, um, you know, we saw firsthand that the farm workers were severely affected. Uh, I mean, I know that the pandemic changed our lives to, for everybody. But again, some populations, you know, f- fair uh, or, or have more, more impact. So uh, I can say that because um, CCJN was part of uh, the uh, COVID uh, farm worker study that was conducted uh, in 2020. So we were one of the six organizations that statewide conducted over 900 um, surveys among farm workers. We were involved in the Central Valley and collected uh, over 150 of those surveys. So they were done over the phone to to ensure you know safety. Uh, but uh, through those surveys and then follow, follow that were followed by in-depth interviews. We find and document with data that farm workers were affected in many ways. Um, some of the crisis was uh, affecting obviously their their um, you know their income and their family economy for a variety of reasons. Um, one was that um, there was uh, places where where there was they they saw a, a a lot of people that were formerly employed in other sectors already like you know they were in, in the you know social services or like um working in restaurants or working in in sales or something when all these businesses closed these people went back to to the fields to mm-hmm. try to find work so i i remember really well uh, a woman from uh Exeter telling me how her crew that used to be 30, all of a sudden there were 90 of them. So the work that they were supposed to do in an entire day, they were done in two, three hours. So that means that she would have to pay for the babysitter, the right to go to the field and in two, and earn two hours of uh, income and then come back home. So she ended up spending more than what she was earning. And this story multiplied and heard it so many times on the other end was that the the women were more impacted than the men why because uh when the uh, schools closed women were kind of like the ones that were staying at home to take care of those children that normally would be in school 
uh, because there was not that ab ability to send the children to school or to have anyone else take care of your children. So childcare became a, among um, one of the top issues that we also heard a lot from farm workers. The other thing is that, um, you know, despite that our state really said, oh, farm workers are essential workers, so we're going to protect them. And they came up with certain recommendations of they have to allow to social distance, they have to give them masks. In reality, what we heard from farm workers is that, you know, the, more than half of the people that we interviewed did not receive a mask or receive one mask for an entire month, for example. Uh, the social distancing was, was not allowed or not practiced. And uh, in particular, I was able to, to hear the testimony of a woman who not only was not allowed to social distance, was retaliated. When she asked, can, can I, you know, can I be space enough from my coworkers? She, the, the next week, she did, was not called back to work in retaliation for, for her asking for her rights. And when I tried to report that to Kalosha, no, I didn't try. I did report to Kalosha. I got a letter back from Kalosha saying that I had provided um, vague information so that they would not do anything with their complaint. So your question about the enforcement, is that was like zero. Um, and, you know, we, we were asking these uh, essential workers to be working more than uh, as much as doctors because they we wanted to assure that we have food on our tables but we were not protecting them it was just on paper but in reality they they were falling through the cracks and um obviously the other way in which the pandemic affected them it exacerbated pre-existing problems like the poor access to health uh, services so a lot of the people that we talked to that were uh, became ill with COVID. Uh, they were uninsured and the clinics were already closed. So, it, you know, that, that created a problem. So definitely, um, I think that uh, the state tried to solve some of these issues by, you know, creating programs like um, Cosecha Sana and other things. But, you know, based on the, the stories that we heard, uh, they, they were not meeting every farm worker's need. And um, definitely the few counties that were able to track down data by occupation, like Monterey County, you see the numbers. You see that the number of cases of COVID uh, positives were higher in among farm workers than in other occupations. I follow CCJN on social media, and I remember also seeing um, work to distribute masks. Yes. Um, so we were able because, I mean, when we were hearing that the people were not receiving the mask and at the same time, we were aware that the state was buying the mask in bulk. We're like, wait a minute, where are the masks? What is happening? So the the state had the great idea that uh, sending the masks to the act commissioners was the best way to give them out to the farm workers, not knowing that uh, probably at least in the Central Valley, the agency that has the least contact with farm workers are the, the ag commissioners because they don't interact with farm workers and they don't care about them, frankly. And uh, so that's when we turn around and say, hey, wait a minute, we need those masks. Some ag commissioners actually start sharing the masks with us, like to Larry, Fresno and Kern. They gave us masks and that's how we took the mask and were out in the fields distributing the mask along with COVID-19 relief funds that we were able to receive from private grants. Um, but 
we had to do that because in the middle of all these, they were not um, being provided with the mask by the employers, neither by by the, you know, the ad commissioners had all these boxes of masks, not knowing what to do with them. And in some specific cases, we've been heard that the contractors that had received masks from, from, from the ad commissioners were turning around and selling them to the farm workers. Uh, or in the little stores that are, you know, where people, uh, when they're on their way to work, where they stop to buy coffee or whatever. I saw it myself. In Tarabella, a little store, um, mar- you know, supermarket there, was selling uh, a disposable mask, one of those that, you know, are surgical masks, mm-hmm. $1. So pri- uh, price gouging. and Totally. So it's like, I mean, I think that it was good that, not only CCJN, but many organizations, were, we were trying hard to fill in the gaps and distribute the mask. And when the wildfire started in August, that we were in with super high, uh, you know, air quality for, um, what, three months almost. Yeah. Uh, and the, that's when we start noticing that they didn't know anything about the, the right to get an N95. They they had no clue what the N95 was. There was a shortage of N95s, and they were super expensive if you find them. So, again, um, that motivated a special campaign and program that we started this year where we created a, a special a little booklet that explains the right according to the law, what is the mass that should be uh, used during wildfires, um, and also how to get registered to receive the notifications when the air quality goes above the 151. Because that's the other, you know, kind of like weakness of that regulation. It's like, really? Does a contractor or a farm worker really know what the air quality is? How are they going to know? Uh, so, you know, we try to fill in the gaps again. And, you know, uh, that those are two instances in which we have done it. But... Um, if anyone falls through the cracks during the pandemic and the wildfire season, we're the farm workers. Certainly. Thank you for um, sharing that, Nayamin, and all that uh, very detailed information. Um, in terms of the rulemaking process and the, the laws that are on the books and uh, enforcement, is there anything else that, um, any other criticisms about the, um, you know, one thing is, um, a, a community need and then another it's how how that's enforced or how that's created as legislation and then enforced anything else about uh, pesticide advocacy that absolutely i think that um ccjn in collaboration with uh, other coalitions like the californians for pesticide reform have been documenting and really analyzing how is enforcement done through these uh, ad commissioners because that's the unique model that California has. The Department of Pesticide Regulation is the entity that creates the rules, the regulations. They write them down, they, you know, they, but then they do not enforce it directly. They um, delegate that authority to the uh, commissioners. And this is where the, the irony comes. They are delegating that authority, yet they, they do not seem to have a lot of um, ability to actually inf- make sure that the, that the ad commissioners are enforcing those those rules. Uh, in theory, I think they do have the authority, but in reality, they, they don't have the political will 
to, to exercise that authority. And we have seen and heard in many instances when we come to DPR and complain, they're not doing this, they're not doing that. Oh, we cannot tell them how to do their work. Or even hearing act commissioners like Fresno County Act Commissioner during this visit that Julie did, she told Julie in her face, the uh, DPR director, you are not my boss. My boss are the supervisors. So that is a problem. If they don't see that really DPR can tell them how to do things and think that they have no authority over a commissioner and they are the ones um, that are enforcing the rules, it's a broken (laughs) system. And that's why, you know, for instance, uh, in the Central Valley, in Fresno it has improved, but the average investigation for a pesticide violation took 19 months, two years to investigate. By the time that they conclude the investigation, the farm worker more likely have already forgotten that it happened in the first place. Then when when there's a, let's say that they concluded that there was a violation, they, they find the, the farmer, the pesticide applicator, whomever, and all that money goes back to the to the ag commissioner. There's no no nothing given as a, you know so compensation or anything to the farm worker. Sometimes they don't even bother to tell them, hey, we, we completed the investigation and find the, the applicant, nothing. So there's a very, in our opinion, there's a, a lot of problems with enforcement. And uh, we, we are really uh, working to push uh, for, for DPR to have more um, ability and ex- exercise that ability to to come up and say uh, to the commissioners, this is the way that you're going to do things. And if you're not going to do it, then they should then not receive the money that they're receiving from DPR. Like if I don't do a part of a contract, I don't get paid. Right? For yeah. So why are they paying them to do something that they're not doing? So I wish that, you know, for me, the solution to that is that they get away with that model. I don't think that uh, it's a good model because of the lack of, of accountability from the ag commissioners to the DPR. There's all right now an extreme case of just how broken this system is. In the community of chapter, uh, this is one of the AB617 selected communities. AB617 is a law that, um, uh, you know, encourage the selection of communities that are burdened by air pollution. And then um, these communities form a, uh, a steering committee with residents and other stakeholders, and we decide uh, we design a plan with the strategies that we thought would cut our emissions. And these plans were based on what the community members considered were the main causes of pollution. In the community chapter, people thought pesticides were a big problem, and they wanted a, a notification pilot. So kind of like what the state is trying to do right now statewide, okay? Well, they wanted that. It was approved in the CERB. It was approved by the Air District, by CARB. $250,000 were allocated for the implementation of that. Guess what? The Act Commissioner said, I am not going to do it. We have been asking the Department of Pesticide Regulation, the Cali PA Secretary, have sent letters to the Act Commissioner. He responded saying, sue me. I'm not going to do it. And two years after that, measure had, was passed. And after having money on the table, we're in an impasse because 
apparently, if we don't sue, if the state doesn't sue this guy, nothing is going to happen. Yeah, definitely an example of how um, the organizational structure of, of authority doesn't coincide, right? Nope. Um, it makes me think that maybe um, you had something like the California Ag Commissioners um, that were uh, put at the county level. Um, so that system was in place before DPR. And so, you know, it doesn't follow the same kind of chain of command as some of the other EPA um, mm-hmm. no. offices. It's, yeah, so definitely, I mean, I'm not sure that I have the, the right, you know, solution for this, but I just do know that there there has to be a significant change in how how we have these, these enforcement um, operations because it's not functioning for, for our communities. It's not working. No. Thank you, Nayamin. Um, so this is... Uh, we're getting close to the uh, completion of the interview. And I know that you have a lot of experience working with um, academics and, and community-based research projects and building on this wealth of experience. Um, I wanted to ask your advice and how you envision uh, for the relations between academics uh, to work with community. Yes, indeed. We, we have a lot of experience, and I, I would say this experience of CCGN working and collaborating with researchers precedes my tenure with the organization. Um, so we have a long-term uh, working relation with researchers, especially from UC uh, Davis, because, you know, user mindset was not even, I, I didn't exist <laughs> at the time, right? Uh, but definitely the way that I have seen these partnerships being very effective for both the researchers, but also the community, is by engaging in participatory projects where it's not the researcher on one end deciding, I'm going to study this, but actually bringing both entities to the table, have a dialogue where residents or us as advocates can say, these are all the things that we we have seen. These are all the things that community have expressed are, you know, um, threats to their health but we need your help documenting them. Not that we have not tried. I think one of the um, uniqueness of CCJN is that we have tried for many years and we have done citizen science. So we have trained our residents on how to do air monitoring of pesticides, of air. We have done water sampling, the gamut of things. Uh, But, you know, there's always that like, oh, you know, if you you don't have a PhD, then that data is not reliable kind of thing. So what the partnership with universities have given us is it have given, um, legitimized the data, if you will, and make it, you know, stronger and robust and really have been a, a very important element to to advance some of the most critical campaigns that we have been able to, to uh, um, further, you know, work on. And I have like a very recent example for years, we we knew, I mean, you don't need to have a PhD to know that it's not a good idea to have a, an oil well next to a house for a very good reasons from, you know, like we have uh, residents that say that they cannot even put a, something on their walls because the vibration of the oil rig, that everything will fall. Uh, so that's just one thing. But, you know, the rotting egg smell the the headaches. I mean, we have been documenting with residents all these uh, 
problems, health problems that they have uh, experimented. We have collected uh, grab samples documenting levels of BOC, benzene near homes. Uh, but obviously, that's just citizen science. However, um, recently, the the state agency that regulates the oil and gas extraction in California, CalGEM, um, announced, and it was the governor, uh, making the announcement that the state will adopt a 3,200-foot setback between new oil wells and homes, schools, and other sensitive um, locations. Again, for all of us, it was a no-brainer, but they needed to to have more uh, support from the scientists saying, yes, this is needed to ensure the health of community members. So uh, there was a panel of scientists with researchers from Berkeley and other universities that worked for months and make uh, recently a recommendation to Caldium saying, yes, there's a robust uh, body of scientific evidence linking all kinds of health problems to the proximity of living to these um, oil wells or storage tanks from uh, pre-birth, um, you know, premature births to um, having um, birth problems uh, as a result of, of mother living near an oil well during the pregnancy, um, lower IQs, asthma, and all kinds of health problems that were documented. And that, you know, based on that, the recommendation was, yes, you have to do this. So um, I think that although we have been advocating for for a setback, I don't know, for the decade, it was a a big difference when when there was these uh, scientists recommending that this was actually needed. Uh, we're not yet done because that is a proposed rule. So Calgem mm-hmm. is receiving comments as we speak, mm-hmm. and I would encourage everyone that cares about the health of communities to submit your comment. You know, just say yes, the state needs this, and um, you know. But that's to me one of the most recent examples that we have where scientists can really support why uh, communities of color uh, are being affected by some of these industries. And what can the state or the, you know, authorities do to protect our health? It, it makes me think of um, kind of a, a complementary relationship where you have organizations uh, that do citizen science that are almost the eyes on the ground, right? They're mm-hmm. embedded with communities. And so bringing folks in to um, make that local knowledge known and information and yeah. then... And I have another example where we have done that, especially with pesticides. So, again, I mean, it, it's not rocket science to understand that there's trades happening when your house is just like 200 feet from a field, right? Uh, but we have to prove it. So we have been uh, working in collaboration, again, with UC Davis, but also with a state, with universities out of our state. Colorado State is one of them. So we have been uh, doing different kinds of sampling from taking dust from the inside the houses to uh, getting um, urine samples from, from residents who live that close to the fields to actually giving the, the, the residents some uh, backpacks with like a, like a pump that was collecting samples. Oh, I, I was a participant in, in that study in Tulare County. And drift catchers and all kinds of things, right? That right now, so the data is collected by the residents, but it then is being analyzed and, you know, um, make it official, if you will, by researchers. 
So I think that that's the perfect, you know, marriage where you have the two, the experience, the live experience of the residents with the legitimization of the scientists that are, you know, coordinating the work. Uh, Now, I mean, I wanted uh, I have a follow up question about um, how these uh, research projects, um, the ability of them to contribute um, in the community. And so one of the ways that that. Um, that comes to mind is about like skill building, right? So when you involve um, community organizations and residents in the data collection process, um, from your experience in these projects, do you see that in, in the, in the community members and participants in your organization? Definitely. It is by far a, a skill building that then allows them to be alert of other violations, you know, um, like, not only, and it is not only about, you know, monitoring all, all that. It's just even other things. A few years ago, we have a citizen science project funded by EPA. And one of the pro, one of the trainings that we uh, allowed the, the participants to receive was the visible emission certification training that normally would only be available for air district staff or for CARB staff. But we took our, our cohort and, and we all received that training. So I also received it. I did as well. You and did it. I was one of, I think the cohort was five people that didn't pass, but everybody else passed and was certified. <laughs> you see? <laughs> and uh, and the so thing easy. is that, that as a result of that, there was a violation that one of the participants was able to verify it in Bakersfield because they were, but they were doing it in, at midnight when no inspectors were watching. So based on, okay, this is, this is opacity, this is this and this and that. So they, they, this resident gave them the time when it was happening and he had a log and then the air district sent inspector at that time and were able to verify it and find the company and that stopped. So, you know, that's a way of, okay, beyond the project, this mm-hmm. is knowledge that remains with them and that they can use to make sure that things are going okay in their community. So definitely we think that um, all these capacity building opportunities for for residents, right now most recently we have been working a lot with youth, really are, um, you know, life-changing, you know, in the terms of the youth, even inspiring them to maybe even pursue some of these careers. Uh, We recently did an exercise uh, here in Fresno, South Central Fresno, where our, our youth wanted to do a truck counting exercise outside of the Amazon warehouse. So during the summer, they went and, and count trucks for two hours, sometimes in the morning, sometimes in the evening. But then they got training from CARB on how to calculate the emissions from those counts. Um, so, you know, that's that's a way of actually ground truthing. Uh, you know, they, they knew that the, the, the trucks were polluting, but now they, they knew for sure how much pollution was coming of, of, you know, one hour of trucks. Yeah. In uh, uh, research, you call that primary data, right? Because it's, mm-hmm. it's data that isn't out there and that uh, folks are creating. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I left the, the last question to the end. Uh, this is the, uh, you know, you leave the, the most difficult questions to the end. I know that you like to run and I wanted to ask, I was curious about what your longest run is and your fastest mile. Wow, run like like really running. Yeah. Okay, my longest run I have run five marathons, so that has been my longest, twenty six point two. 
I'm not a fast runner. So my my fastest marathon was four hours and 13 minutes. And my I have done a lot of half marathons. And uh, my fastest one had been like one hour and 50 minutes or so. My fastest mile could be seven minutes. But that's just what I'm running one mile. And because you're a long... You- like you're a long distance yes. runner, so yes. the one mile is not as important. Exactly. So yes, I love running long distances. It's just I don't like five Ks and all that that you got to go fast. I rather have a you know more like a steady pace, but do long distances. Naomi, thank you so much for taking the time thank to speak you. with me. It was a pleasure. Likewise, thank you, Rodrigo. All right, that is all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. We are going to do more of this. We are going to be mixing things up, letting the fellows take over the podcast, talking to leaders in the field, talking amongst themselves about hot issues in environmental justice and health. So if you enjoy this podcast and the work we're doing, be a part of it. Help us out. Visit agentsofchangenej.org, and while you're there, click the Donate button to support us. You can also find Agents of Change on Twitter and Instagram, and please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, where you can listen to this and all past episodes. The Agents of Change podcast you heard today was produced by fellows Annie Huang and Rodrigo Alatriste Diaz. Edited by me, with outreach and scheduling and support from the rest of the team, Dr. Ami Zoda, Dr. Yoshida Ornelas Van Horn, Summer Ahmad, Gwen Raniger, Hannah Seo, and Aaron Gomez. We'd like to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangeinej at gmail.com with suggestions for the show, questions for the fellows, reviews, or just to chat. And sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter, which is the best way to stay on top of what we're doing. You can find that at the program homepage, agentsofchangeinej.org. Thanks for joining us today. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join us next time when I speak with Lorraine Velez-Torres, a microbiology PhD candidate at the University of Puerto Rico. Have a great week, folks.